The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Jonathan Baylor, is a former personal trainer, the host of a popular syndicated health radio show, an expert in nutrition and exercise, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, which is here today to discuss the calorie myth, how to eat more, exercise less, lose weight, and live better. Welcome to Health Watch, Jonathan Baylor. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's a pleasure. So I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there today who hear the subtitle of your book, Eat More, Exercise Less, and Lose Weight, and go, yeah, right. This is just another gimmick. This is impossible. Um, So before your book goes a lot into um, dispelling what you consider the flawed rationale of the calorie model. But before we go into that, can you just introduce us to the history a little bit around where the calorie model came from and what its what what its uh, assertions are we were we started moving away from food and started moving towards a lowest common denominator called a calorie in right around the 1970s i when the government started getting involved in our diet and when they started telling us to eat less and exercise more and ironically at the very start of the obesity diabetes cardiovascular disease and heart disease epidemic And the idea was that we could just have one simple measure that equivalent classed all food and all physical activity, for that matter, that it would simplify things and that we would all be healthier and fitter as a result. And uh, it is a simplification, but it's a simplification a bit like saying the sum of any two numbers is 43. It's simple, but it's patently wrong. Uh, Not all foods are the same, and they cannot be dumbed down with one single metric. And by doing so, we've ended up in the horrible mess we are today with all the disease and obesity that we are today, simply because it is a proven incorrect model. Can you share some of the, um, you, you take some of these assumptions to their logical conclusions in the calorie myth. For instance, um, if we cut a certain amount of food or calories out of our diet, or looking at how much more calories we eat over decades as a population, we should see a certain amount of, of, of weight gain that we don't see. Can, can you share some of those with our listeners? One of my favorite studies on this subject came from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And what they did is a, a deep analysis of our actual caloric consumption. And what they found is that in 2006, the average American was consuming about 570 more calories per person per day than we were when we were relatively weight-stable as a country in the 1970s. And the conclusion of that paper was, see, we're just eating too much. (laughs) But what my research showed is that really misses the point, because if you look at the actual metabolic mass, we've all been taught let's say that that data is true, which it more than likely is, very reputable research institution. Let's say the average American in 2006 was consuming 570 more calories per day than he or she needed. Well, we can do that metabolic math very simply. You take 570 calories, you multiply it by 365 days in a year, and you multiply it by the eight years in between 2006 and now. And if metabolic math was correct, during that eight-year time period, 
the average American should have gained about 476 pounds. And obviously we haven't. We haven't even gained a fraction of that. In fact, over the past 40 years, the average American has gained 20 pounds. So how do we account for this flagrant misunderstanding of biology? And and what is your answer? How do we account for the fact that we're eating 500 more calories a day, but we're not gaining 400 pounds over eight years? Energy balance works like every other system in our body, but we've been led to believe that it doesn't. For example, take your blood sugar or your blood pressure, right? If your blood sugar goes up, your body takes steps to bring it back down. If it goes down, your body takes steps to bring it back up. Or your body temperature, if you go into a cold room, what happens? You start to shiver. Your body takes steps to warm you up. We all learned about, in high school biology, this term called homeostasis, which is every biological organism in the known universe works to maintain a balance, a range in which life can exist. There's a reason there's no life on the moon, but there is life on the planet Earth. We have a different range of temperatures and atmospheric pressure, for example. Body works the same way. It's not that calories don't exist. It's not that calories don't matter. It's not that if we eat 10,000 calories a day consistently, we won't gain fat. It's that this myth that we need to consciously and precisely balance calories in with calories out has to be wrong because that's not how the body works. We have a portion of our brain called our hypothalamus, which is designed to automatically balance life-sustaining functions. Calories are just one of those. It's the same logic we don't need to monitor, uh, the same logic that shows us we don't need to consciously count milligrams of vitamin C in and milligrams of vitamin C out. We need vitamin C. It's essential for life. But we don't have to consciously balance it. So why are we to believe that we have to do that for calories? We're talking today with Jonathan Baylor, the author of The Calorie Myth, How to Eat More, Exercise Less, Lose Weight, and Live Better. So, Jonathan, at the top of the show, you, you, you mentioned that the calorie model says that it's how many calories go in and how many we burn that matters, not the type of foods that we eat. But, in fact, you're arguing that there's two, two foods with the same calories can have extremely different effects in the body. So if eating more, if eating less and exercising more isn't the answer, what exactly is the answer? The answer is to eat more of the foods that don't break that homeostatic regulating system, because that's really what the research community has shown over the past 40 years. There's been dramatic advancement, and what we've actually seen is that the cause of chronic weight gain. This is the type of weight gain where individuals go on these super restrictive diets and fail continuously 95 plus percent of the time, not because they're not trying hard, but because they don't work. The reason for this is, is obesity is much more analogous to diabetes than it is to some sort of character flaw. We notice characteristic and consistent inflammation in the brain. We notice characteristic and consistent dysregulation of hormones, as well as disruption of gut bacteria. But when we eat the proper quality of foods, more of them, in fact, so much of them that we're too full for the unnatural edible products that cause this metabolic neurological and endocrinological dysfunction, we heal the underlying system and we enable our bodies to pursue slimness naturally rather than obesity naturally. And while that may seem too good to be true, it's actually too obvious to be false because before anyone knew what a calorie was, 
We were all slimmer and healthier, and everyone ate till they're full and stopped when they're satisfied. And every other species on the planet, when left to their own devices, seems to avoid obesity effortlessly. We're not broken by default, but we've been fed incorrect information and poisonous edible products that have broken that system. So what are good quality calories? What do you use as your metric to figure out what we should be eating and not eating? The most general statement we can make is if it's found directly in nature, you're on the right track. So think things like vegetables, meats, fish, fruit, nuts, seeds from the highest of levels. We can now refine that by using the four factors that the research community has established that differentiate one calorie from another. I abbreviate those four factors using the acronym SANE, which stands for satisfying calories, unaggressive calories, nutritious, and then inefficient calories. And, and can you elaborate on each of those? Sure. Satisfying calories are calories that fill us up quickly and keep us full for a long time. For example, there's a popular snack food which tells us that once we pop, we cannot stop. That quote-unquote food is advertising that eating calories from it will actually make you hungrier. That's not a good idea. So we want to eat satisfying calories, not unsatisfying calories. We want to eat unaggressive calories. These are calories that disperse their, let's call it, energy payload into our bloodstream gradually and don't cause a bunch of hormonal chaos, very similar to glycemic index and glycemic load. We want to eat unaggressive calories that give us energy gradually. We want to eat nutritious calories. These are calories that provide us the most of what we need, that which is essential for life, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, fatty acids, and the least of what we don't need, say, simple sugars. And then finally, we want to eat inefficient calories. All things being equal, there are calories, for example, such as protein, which are incredibly difficult for the body to store its fat, simply because protein is not an energy source. It's a structural component, whereas things like starch or sugar are very efficiently stored as body fat. So all things being equal, we would burn more fat eating inefficient calories. So can you name some of the the better foods and some of the worst foods in the SANE model of, of calorie differentiation? The best foods on the planet are without question non-starchy vegetables. These are vegetables you could eat raw. You don't have to eat them raw, but you could. Think foods you would find in salads, green leafy vegetables, peppers, mushrooms, cucumbers, asparagus, broccoli, saute them, eat them raw, however you can get them in your body. They should be about 50% of our plate every time we eat. The next thing a substance in the world would be what I like to call nutrient-dense protein. These are humanely raised animals, wild-caught seafood, things like that. And then whole food fats, so nuts and seeds, especially things like avocados, macadamia nuts, coconut, cocoa, chia seeds, flax seeds, olives, excellent healthy whole food fat sources, and then finally low fructose fruits, things like berries and citrus fruits. If we can eat so much of those that we're too full for insane edible products, such as processed starches, processed sweets, and unnatural trans fats, we will be shocked at how delicious and slim healthy can become. Or delicious and simple. Excuse me. <laughs> right. So, so what about you? Mentioned obviously the the refined sugars and the uh, refined starches as as being bad. Uh, what about foods like uh, beans or vegetables that 
aren't edible raw, so the starchy vegetables, and uh, also whole grains. Do, do you consider those things that people should avoid, like the refined flours and the refined sugars, or are those okay in, in the calorie myth diet? It's less about it's something okay and more about is eating it your best option. The thing we have to keep in mind is that eating is a zero-sum game. And that's an economic term, which says if we do one thing, we're not just doing that thing. We're also not doing something else. So, for example, what a lot of people end up doing is they hear that whole grains are healthy. So they fill their plate up with grains instead of vegetables. So they actually displace vegetables in their diet with grains or with starches. So I'm not a fan of grains. And what I think is somewhat irrelevant, if we actually look at the research and we look at, for example, the nutritional density and the hormonal healing capabilities of grains versus vegetables, it seems like we would all be better off simply eating three, four, five times more vegetables in place of those grains. The same thing applies with legumes. Will they kill you? Absolutely not. I eat legumes on occasion, but it's just that we want to make sure that these not optimal foods, they're not deadly, but not optimal foods aren't displacing those vegetables and those nutrient-dense proteins and those whole food fats. And when you say the science shows that, can you, can you refer our listeners to where it shows that whole grains and legumes are, are less nutritious than eating, the, eating vegetables and animal products? The best place to look is actually just math because nutrient density is not an ambiguous or debatable thing. What you would do, for example, is you would take, say, 100 calories worth of wheat and you would compare it to 100 calories of spinach. And then you would see that there are dramatically more vitamins and minerals in the spinach in 100 calories than there would be in the wheat in 100 calories. And then to make it further clear, if, if listeners really wanted to do this, if they have a friend that's diabetic or if they themselves is diabetic, what they could do is test their glucose levels after eating 100 calories worth of spinach and then test their blood glucose levels after eating 100 calories worth of wheat. And what they would see is that after 100 calories of wheat, their blood sugar would spike dramatically higher, and they would do that while getting dramatically fewer essential vitamins and minerals. But wouldn't it be more uh, relevant to a real-world situation not to compare 100 calories to 100 calories, but to, say, compare uh, a third of a plate versus a third of a plate? Since, obviously, you're going to be eating a lot more spinach to get 100 calories than you're going to be eating of the brown rice, let's say. I don't think so, because I think we need to eat dramatically more vegetables. I think if you look at, for example, the teachings of, of many preeminent researchers, one of my favorite is Dr. Joel Furman, or, or even if you look at a lot of T. Colin Campbell's work, what we consider to be a lot of vegetables is not a lot of vegetables. For example, if you're eating raw spinach, it would be very difficult to consume 100 calories of it. But if you were to eat a sautéed spinach or just even cook the spinach, it would not be very difficult to consume 100 calories of spinach, and that's just spinach. If we move into things like Brussels sprouts, for example, or just any number of other vegetables, it's quite easy to eat quite a lot of them. And there's also an assumption implicit in this argument that, you know, well, where are we going to get our calories from? Certainly you're right that we can't get our calories from vegetables. It would be very difficult to eat, let's say, 2,000 calories worth of vegetables. But we could get our calories from healthy whole food fats. So the question then really comes, is a diet that's higher in healthy whole food fats and vegetables 
preferable to a diet that would be just healthy in starch. And I would argue the former would be a better choice. We're talking today with Jonathan Baylor, the author of The Calorie Myth, How to Eat More, Exercise Less, Lose Weight, and Live Better. So Jonathan, let's touch a little bit on exercise. You, you have a, a similarly interesting approach to what good and bad exercise is. Uh, lead us into that section of the book for our listeners. The challenge with exercise is the same as with food, is it's been framed in terms of the calorie, which is a flawed argument, because just like telling a person, just consume, just eat, just take fewer calories in, it doesn't work, because the body will say, wait a second, no, I need calories, so I'm just going to make you hungry and slow down your metabolism in response to that. Just telling people to exercise more, while it may have other health benefits from a weight management perspective, just like jogging more makes you sweat more, which then makes you drink more because your body is trying to maintain balance, jogging more will make you burn more calories, but it will then cause you to eat more calories, and we all know that it's much easier to eat calories than it is to burn them. So often these approaches are not effective for weight loss. What we need to do is look at the forms of exercise that help us to heal metabolically, not that play this calorie game. And those forms of exercises are those that engage all of our muscle fibers very safely. These are things like very slow and heavy resistance training and very safe and non-impact interval or burst training. And what do you mean by burst training? For example, imagine getting on a stationary bike, one that looks like an actual bike, not one that looks like a recliner. And instead of just pedaling while watching television and maybe talking to a friend on the phone for an hour, what you would do is you would get warmed up and then you would crank the resistance up so you have to stand up on the bike as if you're climbing a hill. And you would pedal as hard as you can for 30 seconds to a minute. You wouldn't be moving very fast because the resistance would be so high. But after about 30 or 60 seconds, you'd have to stop simply because you'd run out of energy. You then reduce the resistance and pedal very gradually for about two minutes till you got your breath back, and then you would repeat that two to three to four times. And in 10 to 15 minutes, you would cause a dramatically different and dramatically better metabolic impact on your body than you would have in an hour or even two hours of conventional, quote-unquote, cardio. And have there been head-to-head studies regarding weight loss specifically around interval training versus sort of a moderate pace jogging or biking? There have, and they've been shocking. There's, been, uh, there's numerous that are referred to in the book, but, for example, there are studies out of Cali- uh, Canada where individuals would spend dramatically less time exercising and achieve the same or superior results from a weight loss perspective. And what's even more encouraging is actually the non-weight results in terms of cardiovascular protection, heart protection, and any, uh, many, many of these studies are called out explicitly in my book. What's well, interesting also, we used to think that weightlifting wouldn't have cardiovascular benefit, and it turns out that we're learning that it actually does. That's exactly, exactly right. And it's also incredibly sustainable. That's the thing that I really like about these forms of exercise is that not only can you do them throughout your life, but almost anyone can do them. This conventional wisdom of just go jog on pavement for an hour a day doesn't, not only is it inappropriate, but it is unhealthy for those individuals who quote unquote need it the most. If you're a 350 pound individual who's diabetic, Jogging on pavement for an hour is 
horrible for you, <laughs> whereas doing slow, safe resistance training is incredibly healthy for you. Well, we should say, though, that jogging has got health benefits, even if it doesn't have weight loss benefits. There's certainly a lot of studies on it regarding blood sugar control and cardiovascular benefit. That's exactly right. And the thing to keep in mind in terms of exercise is it's a bit like eating, two things. It's a zero-sum game. So if you spend your time jogging, you may not be able to spend your time doing something else. So I just like for people to be very specific on their goals. For example, if your goal is to run a marathon, well, you better spend your time jogging because that's going to help you achieve your goal. But if your goal is to, let's say you're a busy professional who has maybe 30 minutes a week to spend exercising, if you were to spend that 30 minutes jogging, you may not get the benefit you want. So I find that individuals get great success when they focus on a specific goal and then find the most sustainable, safe form of exercise that enables them to achieve that specific goal. Well, back to the back to the diet section of the calorie myth, Jonathan. What is your uh, take on vegetarianism, and do, do, is it a, a path that somebody could take your your calorie myth diet and still be a vegetarian? Uh, I think if we have listeners here who are and they're hearing low grain, low bean, low starchy vegetables, and they were to imagine taking out animal products, that would be quite a, a daunting and probably not a very balanced diet. You can absolutely be what I call a sane vegetarian. The sane framework is really just taking the best science has to offer and saying of whatever foods you choose to eat, be it you're a vegetarian, maybe you're low-carb, maybe you're paleo, maybe you're kosher, maybe you're halal, whatever your food set that you currently have today is, you can apply this sane framework to optimize, to increase the satisfaction, decrease the hormonal chaos, increase the nutrition, and, and decrease the likelihood of storing body fat within that framework. So, for example, in a vegetarian lifestyle, some of the most wonderful success stories we've seen have been from vegetarians who've, quote-unquote, gone sane. In fact, we had a woman who was uh, overweight, uh, diabetic, and was unable to conceive a child for over eight years. And after just a few months of sanitizing or just swapping in more plant fat instead of those plant-based starches, she dropped about 45 pounds, went off her diabetes medication completely under the advisement of her physician, and finally conceived a child. So what most sane vegetarians find is instead of getting their calories from sugar, which is what starch is, they simply switch to getting their calories from whole food plant fats, and they achieve dramatic health benefits. Lastly, before we go, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on intermittent fasting. I know you talk a lot in the book about starving ourselves. It makes us worse off because our metabolism slows down so that we regain the weight and sometimes even more. But a lot of the research on intermittent fasting versus calorie reduction on every day seems to show a maintaining of muscle mass uh, and potential cognitive benefit benefits for animals. And I, and I was wondering if um, you had any thoughts about that as playing a role in the calorie myth diet, or is that something you, you're opposed to? It can absolutely play a role. I like to tell people that what my decade plus of research has shown is that focusing on the quality of the food you eat rather than the quantity is going to give you the most bang for your buck. And if you choose to eat a very high-quality diet, 
in four hours versus over the course of 16 hours. Whatever is working best for you, as long as you're maximizing food quality, is a great choice. And do you have any web resources if people are curious about this? Maybe this is the first time they're hearing about these theories and they want to look at more in the book? Absolutely. Please check out CalorieMythBook.com. Again, that's CalorieMythBook.com. And what you'll find is it's quite amazing because far from these being, quote, unquote, my theories, what this book is is an amalgamation of over 10,000 pages of academic research from top institutions such as Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and UCLA, showing that so much of what we've been told has been flatly proven wrong. So I hope it helps people. And could you give some final thoughts to our listeners, Jonathan? I would urge all of your listeners to really take a step back and say, how is it that we were all healthier and slimmer prior to any of us knowing what a calorie was, let alone counting them, and also appreciating the fact that all of these lifestyles that do work, for example, veganism, vegetarianism, South Beach, paleo, low-carb, these lifestyles that have stood the test of time, you'll notice they have at least one thing in common. They focus on what you're eating, a.k.a. food quality, not how much. And that's why they work. Well, it was great having you on Health Watch today. Thank you so much, David. We're talking today with author Jonathan Baylor about his book, The Calorie Myth, How to Eat More, Exercise Less, Lose Weight, and Live Better. If you missed part of today's program, you'll be able to go later today to kboo.fm slash healthwatch and listen to this show and other shows from the archive. Or you can subscribe to Healthwatch through iTunes. Just type in Healthwatch one word into the podcast store search bar. And um, you've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. And next up is Madness Radio.